Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. So, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Daniel Maneker. Uh, thank you, Noel. Thank you, everybody who's here for being here. Um, when I was in publishing, this store had um, a fabulous reputation, along with three or four other great independents. And so I've never been here before, but it's really neat. And um, it's the uh, backbone, I think, of our uh, literary culture. So thank you for having me. Um, now, it's funny you said about Leo Brody coming on Saturday because I'm going to read, this is very frightening because it looks like I'm going to read a lot, but these are really, really short, so I'm going to read for 20 minutes or so, and uh, 25 maybe, and, um, and then maybe if anyone has any questions, I will, but the takes are very short. And the first one is an advertisement for Leo. Um, because we went to Swarthmore together 51 years ago. And um, I want to read something that happened to us at that time uh, first. Um, I actually have it in the wrong place. Here it is, maybe. It's the spring of my senior year. And I'm taking honors exams. Swarthmore has an honors program. They are eight three-hour written exams and eight oral exams, all administered by professors from other colleges. I've studied for these exams for three months in the spring, according to a lunatic, obsessive schedule I made for myself. The exams seemed to be going well for me. During my oral exam in Baroque painting, a stout, tweed-jacketed, thick and glossy-bearded professor from the University of Pennsylvania takes a copy of Rembrandt's last late painting, The Descent from the Cross. I, uh, he says, he says, he asked me to talk about it. He says, what do, you, what do you know about this painting? And I say, well, one thing I know is that the artist use, has been, used ir irrational lighting for it. He said, you read that piece about irrational lighting. He says, I'm impressed. And he goes on, but the thesis about light sources is wrong. Look, we look at the reproduction together, and he shows me that the lighting of the scene, though extremely dramatic, isn't really irrational. He takes other late Rembrandt paintings from his little stack, and we discuss their brooding, luminous use of light and the possibility that the artist's failing vision may have affected this aspect of his painting. I mentioned that I've read that El Greco may have had astigmatism, which could account for the elongation of figures in his late paintings. 
The examiner smiles and says, also wrong, in my opinion, but arguable. Just because a professor or a scholarly, scholarly journal says something doesn't make it right. He smiles a merry and mischievous smile. Now, he says, here's another Rembrandt, this one with some of the background painted by his apprentices. No, I say. Why not, he says. Rembrandt didn't have any apprentices. When the honors exams results are posted in the spring of my senior year, Samuel Hines, modern poetry teacher, invites me and my friend Leo Brody, here's the ad, my friend Leo Brody to have drinks and dinner with him and his wife. Leo gets highest honors. I get high honors, and by God, I will take it. When we arrive at his house, Mr. Hines comes out and greets us. He puts his arms around our shoulders and says, my boys. I get so drunk that evening that I pass out on the couch in Mr. Hines' study. The next morning I get up with the worst hangover ever, and Mr. Hines offers me a glass of orange juice. This will cut the phlegm, he says. Let's see. William Shawn is the editor of The New Yorker for many of the years that I'm there. He always claims that The New Yorker does not and cannot, with integrity, try to attend what a reader might want to read. We publish what we like and hope that some people might want to read it too. This modest formulation of hauteur finds its best expression in a remark made by a, checker, a fact checker when the magazine finally breaks down and adds a real table of contents. As opposed to the almost microscopically small and cryptic listing that seemed on occasion to fly around and land obscurely in goings on about town. The real table of contents arrives shortly after I do, and the new feature has been kept a secret. And when we all get our first-run copies on a Monday morning, a collective gasp of dismay goes up from the checking department. A colleague finally says, this is just awful. How could we do such a thing? Being green, I say, well, don't you think it's a good idea for readers to know what's in the magazine? She says, it's none of the reader's business what's in the magazine. <laughs> this is after Tina Brown arrives many, many years later, 25 years later almost. Tina takes me to lunch at the new Royalton Hotel across 44th Street from the fabled Algonquin. Dan, what do you think of Bill Buford? Bill Buford is the editor and one of the founders of Granta, a very good literary quarterly published in England. There goes my job, I say. Don't be ridiculous, I'm not going to hire him, she says. Oh, you probably are. You may not know it yourself. I realize that. She says, well, you are a chippy sod. <laughs> And speaking of the New Yorker, I worked with Pauline and Kale for quite a while. Uh, she fired me, actually. Um, Sean came into my office and said, um, now, Mr. Menneker, I don't want you to be upset about this. You lasted longer with her than Mr. Botsford did. You lasted longer with her than 
why you even lasted longer with her than I did, and sort of chuckled about it. And then he said, but Miss Kale feels that um, she wants another editor, that you don't have the time to pay close enough attention to what she has written. And that meant that I that maybe got a little impatient when she read her column to me over and over again in her office four or five times, and maybe she detected some uh, impatience. But after I leave and after she leaves, she buys a house in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, where my family has lived for actually close to 100 years. Um, so Pauline and I get to know each other again and become friends. I reacquaint myself with another link to my past. Pauline Kale has a house in Great Barrington, about six miles from my uncle's. I mean ours. We inherited his house. She and I have become friends up here now that we've both left the New Yorker. I'm visiting her at her house on the hill above the town one afternoon, sitting on the wide front porch. She's read a piece I wrote for the New York Times Magazine about Emmy Lou Harris and gives me a compliment about it. I tell her that once I'd been interviewing the singer years earlier backstage at Carnegie Hall after a concert when we were both in our early 30s, she was, uh, she was in what seemed like a rivalry, a friendly one, with Linda Ronstadt. I'd fancied myself in love with Emmy Lou Harris, which distinguished me from perhaps four blind, deaf, heterosexual males in America. <laughs> She turned away to say something to someone else, turned back to me and said, I'm sorry, Dave. What was the question? I said, it's Dan, but that's okay, Linda. She laughed. Ten minutes later, after circulating in the room, she came back to me and said, we're going to go out and have some dinner. Would you like to come? I said that I couldn't, even though I absolutely could because I was just plain terrified. So the point was I absolutely couldn't. My mistake. <laughs> Pauline Kaya listens to this story. When I finish, she says, you asshole. <laughs> I laugh and I say, thanks, Pauline. Thanks for your understanding after I told you this mortifying, youthful tale. You have to understand, she says. I said that because when I was in San Francisco at KPFA reviewing movies, Duke Ellington propositioned me. I was a young, swooning girl, but I said no, too. Well, in my case, I say, I'm not sure proposition is the right asshole is, she says. <laughs> um, Let's see, what is this one for? I'll just go on to the next. Um, a lot of the last part of the book is about uh, a cancer episode that I've had. I had lung cancer diagnosed about seven years ago, had a lobectomy, had a slight recurrence, and have had stereotactic body radiation therapy. And one of the things that cancer uh, sometimes does for you on the sort of plus side is um, make you take a look at your life and value. And all that hallmark stuff comes true. You begin to value what you have and how lucky you've been. Um, so this is um, after uh, surgery, after chemotherapy, and after radiation therapy.
My hair has grown thicker and curlier the way it was before I started chemotherapy, and after I finished the subsequent stereotactic body radiation therapy more than eight months ago now. It has been close to a year of treatments for the four malignant nodules in the lower lobe of my left lung. I'm not sure there's anything left to be said or even thought about cancer and its world, but, well, write what you know. And anyway, the experience of serious illness is always as varied in its complexities as its victims. There are violent leg cramps at night after treatment with cisplatin when you feel demons in the back of your thigh trying the, tying the muscles there into Ashley's stopper knots. The manic episodes caused by steroids administered to lessen the toxic effects of chemotherapy. I bought this computer that I'm working on right now when I was first on steroids. When my wife took them for hearing loss, she tried to buy an apartment. The there are the awkward and moving moments of support and renewed friendships, the discreditable angry suspicion of charity that accompanies gestures of fence mending, the beautiful nurses with their expert IV techniques and their $10,000 a dose, 10 minutes worth of pemetrexid. The endless repetitions of full name and date of birth. The nausea suppressed by superb new medicines. The pure and purely random luck of being able to afford the best doctors and hospitals. The learning, finally, of patience, which is what must be the reason for our being called patients. The weirdness of surgeons with their scrawled third grade drawings of what they're going to cut out of you. The huge futuristic radiology machines with rotating round cyclopean eyes that look like white sunflowers from another planet and whose radiation not only targets the, lung, it, the lesions in the lung and conforms to their shapes, thus sparing healthy tissue, but by means of instant feedback actually move in order to adjust for breathing. The claustrophobia of some of those machines, especially the whole body obese cannon-like PET scanner, which takes almost an hour to ferry you through its noisy tube, halting for minutes and minutes and minutes at a time, while one benzo or another just barely keeps panic away. The Pandora stations you request during, these radiation, during radiation sessions. Choose Hank Williams, I say. The recognition that ultimately, like the rest of us, the doctors sometimes don't know what they're doing. The botching that is almost bound to happen at one point or another. In your case, a second percutaneous needle biopsy through your back into your lung to sample a lone nodule slightly removed from the others, which led to a pleural effusion, fluid outside the lung, which held up radiation therapy because with the fluid sloshing around out there, the nodules weren't stable enough to target, and which, when the fluid was aspirated by a handsome doctor from India who tucked his tie in between two of his shirt buttons, thus precipitated a huge crush on the part of your wife, who actually wanted to watch the needle go into your back, turned out to be six ounces of stuff that looked like cherry Kool-Aid. The question of when to tell your kids about what's going on, the insurance paperwork, the small vacations, like sabbaticals between treatments, the alternating mortality, depression, and exhilaration. The latter, according to your therapist friend, proceeding from the unconscious conviction that, at last, you have finally been punished enough for your sins.
the increased recklessness of your discourse, the taking of taxis when you could easily take the subway or a bus, the miserliness you often feel about giving time to help others. And I think I'll just go back to the very start um, and try to find one of the things I was going to read and seem to have screwed up here. And then I'll stop. Um, I went to the Little Red Schoolhouse in Greenwich Village when there were lots of Little Reds there. And um, the headmaster was subpoenaed by the House on American Activities Committee and there was a parochial school in the corner. And the kids in the Catholic school hated us, uh, mainly Jewish, not entirely, but mainly. And they thought, they tried to kill us actually by throwing fluorescent light bulbs at us. Because I guess somebody told them there was poison in them. And so we would walk you know, out of school and we'd see these long tubes sailing at us. And this was at a time when I was seven or eight when I thought a pharmacy was a branch of Macy's that was far away from it. Um, as we march to and from the playground in the fall of 1948, we live up to the parochial school kids' worst opinion of us by, chant, by chanting a, a, a chant for Henry Wallace for president. A chant we seem to know osmotically from the pink air we all breathe. It goes like this. Dewey is in the outhouse, crying like a baby. Truman is in the doghouse, barking like crazy. Wallace is in the White House, talking to a lady. <laughs> um, and, and there was one more I was short one I wanted to read. Where is it? Oh, I know. Wait, one sec. Sorry. Um, I'm sitting in the kitchen. This is 14. By the way, the book is... is um, structured by age. So some, there's some very short sections and some much longer ones. And each heading is an age of, of me, <laughs> unsurprisingly. 14. I'm sitting at the kitchen counter in our house in South Nyack. We moved there because the tuition, even at the little red schoolhouse, was too high. My mother arrives home from her arduous commute to the offices of Fortune, where she, she has become a legendary copy editor an expert on grammar, usage, and idiom. She was a classics major at Bryn Mawr, and she knows Greek and Latin. She's beautiful. She always wears her brown hair in a bun, always acts in a somewhat flirtatious way, even with my brother and me, always makes an impression of effortless good looks. She says to me, when I got off the bus just now, I heard one Negro boy on a bicycle say to another who wanted a ride, Okay, get the fuck up on the bicycle. I never heard her use this word before. She says, I'm just wondering what part of speech the fuck is. <laughs> she has already threatened to disown me if she ever hears me say Tiffany's again. She says it's Tiffany. Another evening, around the same time, she tells my father and brother and me at dinner of a researcher who burst into, her, into tears when she jokingly said to her at the magazine that day about a question of factual accuracy, let me know when, let me know when you make up your alleged mind. <laughs> my mother asks, isn't it clear that I was just kidding? Before she dies, suffering from metastatic 
metastatic pancreatic cancer in her 80s, she writes a last entry in her journal, is this what I get for feeling so superior all my life? And then one more from ninth grade, and I promise I'll stop. Mrs. Giles, my ninth grade English teacher, assigns us homework of writing sentences that are declarative, compound, complex, interrogative, and imperative, and one sentence in the passive voice. I write, the dog chased the cat. The dog chased the cat, and then the cat chased the dog. After the dog chased the cat, the cat chased the dog. Did the dog chase the cat? <laughs> dog, chase that cat. And of course, finally, the cat was chased by the dog. She says it's very funny and gives me a C. What? A C? But that is the beginning of my humor writing career. Thank you very much. Thank you. Do you have a question? Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I'm on New York time. I'm kind of, and you know, a little bit bleary, so forgive me. Yeah, anyone? Friends? There's so many familiar, lovely faces. L Leo Brody, yes. Now, you, you structured it in terms of years. Yeah. No, I, I, the proposal I did, which was rejected by 11 or 12 publishers, and then um, offered for by um, a strange guy who left a message on my answering machine saying, Daniel Menneker, I am you. We are the same person. <laughs> and, uh, but he made an offer. He left a few days later. <laughs> There's no causal connection, I don't, I don't think. But Houghton Mifflin has been very good and they supported me and sort of picked up where George Hodgman left off. Um, the reason I did it that way is that when I wrote the proposal that was so roundly rejected, uh, and I posted the rejections on the Huffington Post and was got in terrible trouble for it. But anyway, um, uh, it seemed to me very Leaden. It was normal. It was like, you know, when I was born, I little then, and then I went to the school, and then we moved to Nyack, and these things happened, and so on. And it just, you know, just normal. And I thought this is really boring to me. So it was sort of desperation. I don't know. It came to me out of sort of nowhere to do it in these bite-sized units and it also I think was probably unconsciously a reflection of social media of of shorter shorter takes the book is about 222 pages it's not long I've had a lot of people who didn't necessarily love it say they kind of wanted to keep reading because of this idea that they sort of didn't have to <laughs> so it was like one more like one more section one more section so um, I, I, I'm not sure where it came from. It just came so much easier. And then I realized as I got further on up, up in age that I could retroactively braid it together so that it wasn't just atomic. It was sort of more connected than it started out to be. How much, how much of the book deals with your life before New York? Oh, a third, maybe. Um, Greenwich Village. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say it maybe 20 to 25, maybe 25% about the New Yorker. 
Um, here's a New Yorker story. I wrote a story about a transit strike um, in New York, and I was hitchhiking around, so I decided I'd talk to people who were also hitchhiking. And um, I talked to this guy, and I said, how are you getting around? He said, diesel. And I said, what are you, diesel, what are you talking about? And he pointed to his feet and said, diesel get me anywhere. <laughs> so I put that in the, in the talk of the town story that I wrote. It was taken, it was used, but when it showed up in page proof, it didn't have the pun in it. Didn't have diesel get, it was cut. So I went in to see Sean, who disliked me intensely, and I had been asked to leave some years earlier, and, uh, and I didn't leave. Um, and I said, you know, I, I know we don't like we don't like puns, but this one seemed to me a little funny, a little ironic, and you, you know, it was like a joke instead of a pun. And he said, Mr. Menneker, I don't expect you to understand this. The people who who work here, I don't expect anyone to understand these things. But if I were to restore that pun in your story, it would destroy the magazine. <laughs> no joke. <laughs> Yeah, I hung on. He wrote me a note the day... The third year, the fourth year? Second year. Second year. He stayed for 24 more. Yeah. yeah. He wrote me a note the day he died uh, that his son Wallace sent to me, um, which was very recon reconciling. He, Wally said that when I had lunch with him that he thought his father thought he'd made a mistake. It's his mistake. Jerry? So uh, I started devouring the book yesterday. Uh, I promised to buy a copy, but I started by downloading it. Boo. Yeah, Boo. Uh, uh, and there the parts of the, some of the best parts of the book are recountings of conversations and your memory for, uh, for their speech. Uh, and of course, I'm, I'm totally convinced of it, but how much trouble do you have um, remembering? It's clear. It's well. It's clear that they're not verbatim. Um, I really believe the essence of them is true. Um, uh, I have something in here about Renata Adler telling me that she became a writer to meet writers. She was a lawyer. In fact, she was on the Watergate Commission, interestingly enough. And she wrote me an email just now, um, a couple of days ago, saying she didn't remember saying that, and that's not why she became a writer. But she wasn't upset about it. And I reconstructed the conversation as best I could. I, when I talked to her and she told me she was a lawyer, I said, what, what made you choose to be a writer instead of being a brilliant lawyer, as you could have been. And she said it was to meet writers. And that, she said, rang a faint bell with her. So that's a kind of anecdotal answer to your question. Um, I'm pretty sure, I mean, Chippy, I mean, I'm sure of the sort of nuggets in the book. Um, but uh, some of them are reconstructed, yeah. Um, but there's some of them very memorable. When Harry Evans hired me because Tina Brown wanted to get rid of me and he was her husband, he said, I mean, how do you forget this? He said, okay, you have five years to fuck up. <laughs> I mean, I, I can't make that. I can't make that up. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Friday would be 50 years of Kennedy assassination. Yeah. What was the scene like in New York? Don't know. Wasn't there. Not till 69. No. Um, Watergate scandal. 
I don't. Uh, Watergate. Well, we. Ha I don't. I don't remember. I just got off a plane. Give me. <laughs> give me a break. <laughs> yeah. You alluded to the article you wrote about with, with all the rejection letters, slightly redacted. Yeah. And did people who had written the letters read that and get in touch with you? One person got really mad. Uh, Jeff Klosky at Riverhead Books wrote to my agent didn't have the nerve to write to me, I know him, and said that, it was interesting, I took it, you know, one-eighth of it to heart. He said, the problem with Dan's doing this is that the, the company that did buy it didn't know about the rejections and sort of, sort of the wind might go out of their sails if Houghton sees that eight or nine people rejected. He said, I'm not objecting on my own, on my own behalf, even though his was one of the notes. First of all, I wondered why he didn't write to me, why he wrote to Esther, and because he could have found me easily. And secondly, if a company, if an acquiring editor, someone buys something and is going to be cowed by the negative responses of others, shouldn't have bought it. Also, there are so many stories in publishing about stuff that was turned down by 18 or 19 people that it, it doesn't really have any weight. Prep by Curtis Sittenfeld, which is somebody who someone I worked with, turned out by 18 publishers, and it was only acquired by Random House on the sort of second go-around, and there are million stories like that. So, you know, I, I just thought it was funny. I don't know. You must have written a million uh, rejection letters yourself. Are there any you look back on and regret? No. I took... No, absolutely not. Oh, you mean people that I wish I'd bought? Other than Amy? No. No. No, I know. Amy's the only person that I ever regret. Well, it's not a matter of right or wrong. It really, I mean, you do learn, you do begin to learn, especially in book publishing, but also in magazines that, and uh, newspapers, that sometimes it's really true that it's not for you. And sometimes it's really true that it's not for us. And when the thing goes on to achieve a claim somewhere else, you don't feel, I mean, you feel somewhat regretful, but you don't feel like you did the wrong thing because it wouldn't have worked, it didn't fit. When I went to Sean and said I wanted to write a piece about Swarthmore, um, a long reported piece, I mean, he was wrong in this case, but what he said was, Mr. He said, Mr. Menneker, what you want to write, he says, I'm afraid we, we can't approve that. What you want to write is an article. We don't publish articles. <laughs> I would. Article, you know, the word is a diminutive, if you think about it. It's a little art, article. You know what testicle means, comes from? No, do you know what testicle comes from? It comes from Latin, little witness. There you go, there you go yeah. So, why did he hate you so much? And I don't understand the New Yorker. Usually when the boss says, I'd like you to go. Yeah, you, go. you don't stick around. For me. What happened was he didn't speak to me directly. The exec, the executive editor uh, at the time, Robert Bingham, who was married to my cousin, um, all in the family, uh, came to me at the copy desk and said, "When I was a copy editor, bad one, I became a very good one." Um, said to me, "We, are, you don't have to leave, but we want you to find another job." So I thought, 
you know, I looked for another job. I, got, I actually got a job at the Saturday Review, and it folded the next week. So I wasn't going there, and I just hung on. And there was this sort of politesse about not wanting to fire people, but they asked me to leave, so I hung on. And then, you know, I was offered, you know, I applied for a job at Steamfitters newsletter or something. And I don't know, it just wasn't working. And then William Maxwell, who was a famous fiction editor, famous writer, very under, undervalued, underappreciated writer, um, took me under his wing. And after that, things went better. And Sean finally, Sean said, Mr. Menneker, it has been decided to allow you to become a fiction editor. You've been very cheerful and persistent. And I said, well, that makes me sound like a golden retriever. <laughs> and he didn't laugh at all. <laughs> yeah. Um, you mentioned that, um, that, that Chip, your friend Chip, was uh, often in his office in Sean's office, right? Charles McGrath, who was the deputy editor of The New Yorker under Sean and Gottlieb and Tina Brown, and who became editor of The New York Times Book Review, uh, was one of Sean's designated successors. There were six or seven, and they sort of rotated around. So was it known uh, around the office that he was having an affair? Oh, yes. With Lillian Ross. Everybody knew. Yeah. And the story you're referring to is that Chip says, and he's I asked him about this again, because I said, I really want to make sure of this, that, when, that Lillian Ross had a separate telephone in Sean's office that only she used. And when it rang, Chip said, Sean went <laughs> like that. So, and I absolutely believe it. And then well, later at a party. Well, I entered a party. I was talking with Mrs. Sean, the real Mrs. Sean, and, um, and we were having a nice conversation. I had crashed the party by mistake. It was a wake, and I hadn't been invited, uh, but I showed up anyway because I, it's, it's in here. So anyway, I was talking to Mrs. Sean, and she said, I'm sorry, Mr. Menneker, I have to leave. And I said, oh, but I'm not done yet because I'm kind of never done. So, um, and she said, no, you don't understand. I really have to leave kind of, she was very small and timid, but adamant about this. I said, okay, I'm sorry. Please, by all means, and it's nice to talk to you. So about five minutes later, Sean walked in with Lillian Ross. So they had it choreographed. So it was not to hurt whose feelings? Who knows? Mine. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I did. I did. I thought he was a, a genius, but but no, I didn't care for him. He was a mono, he was a Maoist. He was a monomaniac. But but uh, but he read like a child. He read like a child, and I think in the book I use the example of a child who might say, "But if Hansel and Gretel's mother died, why would?" their father marries such a horrible woman? That's the kind of question Sean would ask. Sort of, but a child with totally grown up, incredibly tenacious mind with all the adult capacities of intellectuality. And so, yeah, he was, in his heyday, he was great. And he also took chances with strange stuff. And um, uh, we didn't get along. It's it, again, it's too complicated. But but we did have this sort of final 
loathsome word, closure, at the end. Anyone else? Thank you so much for coming. I don't want to keep everyone. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.